Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with Professor Sarah Beringer Gordon, otherwise known as Sally. Professor Gordon is a professor of constitutional law and a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. She is well known for her work on religion in American public life and the law of church and state, especially for the ways that religious liberty developed over the course of American national history. Her book, The Mormon Question, Polygamy and Constitutional Conflict in the 19th Century America, won the Mormon History Associations and the Utah Historical Society's Best Book Awards in 2003. She recently published an article with her co-author, Jan Ships, on the Mountain Meadows Massacre in the Journal of the Early Republic. Let's hear what she has to say about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Professor Gordon, Sally, how are you today? Thank you for joining us. I'm doing well, although it's about 90 degrees here in Philadelphia with no air conditioning. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I mean, I apologize for um, starting with such a big ask. Um, but for context, we were wondering if you could start off by, you know, just giving us a quick overview on 
who Joseph Smith was and uh, when he established the Mormon church and, and what motivated him and his early followers to venture out west. Joseph Smith was born in 1805, so he was an early 19th century character. He was born in Vermont, but grew up in upstate New York in what's called the burned over district, meaning that waves of religious fire crashed across western upstate New York year after year after year. And like many others, Joseph was deeply, deeply curious about religion, and he tried many different um, religious organizations uh, and was deeply frustrated by the competition between them, by their claims that they they uh, could save you and then yelled at you all the time and things like that. <laughs> they, they just didn't seem effective to him. And he began to... Um, uh, consider his own religious life more and more seriously and had visions of God and Jesus, he eventually was led um, to buried plates um, in, in the soil in upstate New York. He said they were golden. They were written in what he called reformed Egyptian, and he had to use seer stones and a hat to translate the plates over uh, over months. Um, it took quite a while. And in 1830, he published the Book of Mormon, which is what gave the Mormon church its nickname. It was never called the Mormon church. It's called actually the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and they preferred to be called Latter-day Saints rather than Mormons, although that has shifted a bit over time, used to be considered an insult and is now relatively commonly used. Oh. Um, Smith um, not only translated the Book of Mormon, he, he received ongoing revelations throughout his life and wrote those down as well. And his new church grew quickly and grew controversial quickly um, at the same time. So Smith had several aspects of his uh, of the new church that struck many people as strange. One was a new scripture and what scholars of religion call a channeled scripture, meaning that the earthly recipient had to translate it, had to receive it and translate it. Um, and so that was considered maybe even blasphemous, the claim of a new scripture. The other thing was that he claimed that Jesus appeared in North America as well and would come back there and that this was where um, this was where uh, the salvation of the world would occur. Um, and he claimed to restore the only true Christian church. He said it had been polluted by 15 centuries of interference with the Bible and with beliefs and so on. And um, so those were very bold um, and to many people, very exciting new ideas, um, but they were also very off-putting to others. 
So when does the conflict between the church and uh, the state and federal government begin? Oh, that's a great question, because I think it was a long time coming. Um, So one of the things that happened was that um, uh, Joseph encouraged, ordered all converts to the faith to gather together. So the gathering of the saints um, meant that people moved in quickly wherever the settlement was, um, and that also quickly neighbors became disturbed by these new populations that showed up that had a prophet, Joseph Smith, who talked with God um, and uh, their obedience to him and their support of him led many neighbors to suspect that they were brainwashed or fanatics or um, otherwise deceptive and dangerous. And there were several elements to this, depending on where the settlement was. So I'm thinking in particular of the um, mid and late 1830s when a number of saints settled in Missouri. And Mm. one of the things that the um, Missourians claimed about the saints was that they were anti-slavery and that they were disturbing the system of slavery in Missouri. The Book of Mormon also talks about the people called the Lamanites, who are Native Americans, a lost tribe of Israel, according to church doctrine. And the Missourians were very worried about that, too. They didn't want anybody making friends with the natives, and they didn't want people disturbing slavery. Um, And that the the conflict in Missouri uh, between the saints and uh, between Missourians, including the governor of the state, grew quite violent. And several unarmed, I think it's about 16 unarmed saints were actually slaughtered by the Missourians. Yes. And one of the things Joseph Smith did was complain to Washington, saying, you federal government, you know, you have to get involved. We're being killed here just for our religion. And Congress people told Smith, and they were right, that protection of religious liberty in the hands of Congress comes from the First Amendment, but it didn't apply to the states. So that the federal government said they had no power to intervene to protect Mormons. And that's one of the things that made Smith so angry that he ran for president so that he could properly interpret the Constitution. <laughs> wow. I-, I had no idea he had run for president. He did. Um, so when does Brigham Young, Young come into the picture and, um, and, and why? How? Smith was murdered. Actually, technically, it was a lynching. He was being held in a jail, um, and the local officials um, uh, – absolutely did not interfere with an anti-Mormon mob that gathered um, and uh, assassinated Smith um, and others and wounded um, Smith's brother, for example. Um, And so 
one of the things that happened was that the prophet was martyred. In other words, that was a devastating occurrence for the saints. Uh, and it only confirmed to them that what they were subject to persecution, that they could have no protection from the states. The, um, the killing happened in Illinois near the city of Nauvoo, which was a Mormon settlement. Um, and uh, uh, with the assassination of Joseph, the question of who would succeed to Joseph really became quite urgent. And there were several uh, contenders. Uh, and um, Emma Smith, Smith's widow, argued that their son should take over and so on. Um, but Brigham Young won out relatively quickly uh, and um, gathered the saints, um, determined that the only way to really establish a community that would be would protect and nurture the saints would be to leave, to form mm. their own jurisdiction to go west. And the first migration west to what is now Utah um, happened in 1847. Technically, Utah was still Mexican territory, but the Mexican-American War uh, really was um, over, and it was clear that it was going to become American territory. There were, there were people uh, many people going west, not just the Latter-day Saints. Um, uh, so one of the things to think about is the ways that governments had failed to protect the saints. So they decided they needed their own government and their own territory in order to protect themselves. So I'm assuming this is when he becomes governor of Utah? Well, the um, the cession of land from Mexico to the United States in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, yes, included Utah, um, Arizona, New Mexico, California, um, and it was the Compromise of 1850, which was a very big bill. You think it's hard getting things through Congress now. <laughs> <laughs> a really big and controversial controversial bill um, that did many things, um, including provide new supports for slavery, um, but it also admitted California as a state and created Utah as a territory. So Young was not governor of Utah officially uh, until 1850. Oh, right. So much a little later. Yes. Uh, and what was his what was the early part of his governorship like? Um, well, they there weren't all that many people there is one thing to note. So uh, it was hard. There were um, a plague of locusts, for example, ate a lot of crops. The soil um, and farming was much different than in the East. Um, and it's fair to say that the saints really struggled, but the trip across the plains and settling Utah was an enormous accomplishment. And Brigham Young used to say that enduring that trip had forged a people and, and that they were 
far more powerful as a result, more dedicated, um, and God would smile on them. He talked about the kingdom in the tops of the mountains that they were building Zion and in, in the West, um, and they wanted to keep their community inwardly focused um, and to prevent strangers from coming among them. They wanted mm-hmm. to run their own lives. They would always say, we mind our business, you mind yours. They wanted no interference. Um, and so that's worth noting that these people had been, they called it driven meaning that they had been persecuted in place after place. They had retreated and retreated. And their kingdom in the tops of the mountains was what they set out to build in Utah. Um, And they sent uh, uh, Latter-day Saints who gathered there all over the territory, making settlements and spreading the word. So what happens in 1857 that causes tensions to rise amongst the the church and uh, state government leaders uh, and the federal government? Yeah. So a lot was happening in the 1850s, especially about slavery. Um, 1857 in the spring saw the decision, the Dred Scott decision, decision upholding slavery in all U.S. jurisdictions, forbidding individual states from um, from banning uh, 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 slavery um, uh, in in the new territories, for example. Um, And so one of the things that happens is that the Democratic Party really stressed what was called popular sovereignty in response um, uh, to anti-slavery activism. They argued that each, each jurisdiction should be able to decide for itself what its domestic laws would be. And one of the most clear instances of popular sovereignty was in Utah, where all the voters supported what was thought of as the analog to slavery, polygamy. And and so one of the things that the Democrats were very nervous about was that Utah was taking their idea of popular sovereignty and saying, yeah, well, we get to decide our own domestic arrangements too. And we believe that one righteous man should and can marry multiple women. That's our domestic relation. You others, you know, you have slavery. We're fine with that too. But polygamy is what we do. And that was deeply, deeply unpopular. Deeply. Um, Where slavery was defended by many it was really hard to find anybody outside the church to defend polygamy. And so one thing that James Buchanan, then the president of the United States, I'm chagrined to say the only president from Pennsylvania, (laughs) terrible president, he's always way down the list. He did In in an effort to quell the challenge to this idea of popular sovereignty, he declared Utah in open rebellion and sent an army out um, 
to Utah. People in Utah knew this. They were really nervous. Um, Brigham Young had told them if they had to burn down Salt Lake, they would do it. Um, they were going to fight off the army and so on. So there was a lot of tension in the air. But there were also still lots of people migrating west. And many people headed, especially to California, went through Utah. They kind of crossed the whole state, starting in the north and going out in the south of the state, rumbling through Utah, which was very poor, very tense, and very Mormon. And the wagon trains um, were rarely full of Mormons. They were often full of people who had nothing but disdain for the Latter-day Saints. There were, there's one famous incident of a woman who was having a tough labor, and there was a doctor in Salt Lake who offered to come assist her delivery. And she said, nope, no Mormons. I'm not taking a Mormon doctor. Wow. Right. So there was there was deep seated distrust going both ways. Could you explain to us the concept of Mormon blood atonement? Oh, I could. You know, one of the most controversial phrases, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) So the idea, and and it's not really unheard of, um, you've heard an eye for an eye and so on, but the idea is that some sins are so grave that only blood can atone for them. One of the things that Christians believe is that Jesus died to atone for their sins. In other words, so so that so that the concept of grave injury of blood of death as payment for sin is really deep inside uh, the Christian religion. So I I do want to give that context. Uh, but the language of blood atonement um, became both more widely used in the 1850s, especially with a revival that roared across uh, the Latter-day Saints and and really uh, re-engaged people with with the faith and with the stark commands of the faith as well. Um, uh, But also um, uh, the language was taken up outside the faith as evidence of Mormon violence. And so it was it was in some ways unfairly used against the saints. So I'd like to talk about the 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 militia, the local militia that was formed. Uh, what was their purpose uh, and and what were the uh, were there any alliances made uh, with the local Native American tribes? Mm. the The first um, latter day Saint militia. Um, was formed in Nauvoo in Illinois, and Joseph Smith declared himself General Smith. And there's a wonderful picture of him on his horse with his uh, sword held out in, you know, a uniform with epaulets and so on. Um, but militias, again, I just want to emphasize how common they were in the mid 19th century. How many people um, sort of engaged in extra legal violence. Um, So I I don't want to imply that this is only the Latter-day Saints. But the Mm -hmm. Nauvoo Legion, as the militia was called, um, survived the trip. 
to Utah. Um, and John D. Lee, who was sent to settle southern Utah um, uh, and was a member of the Nauvoo Legion while in, in Nauvoo itself, um, uh, was a member of the militia and commanded the militia in Utah, in southern Utah, um, starting in 1851 when he was sent south. Now, uh, the Fancher-Baker party, who was part of the, uh, the, this party? Uh, where were they going? And what is the connection, if any, that they had to the LDS church? That's another really, really good question. So one of the ways that I like to think about this conflict between um, this party from Arkansas, this wagon train from Arkansas led by Alexander Fancher, um, is that the conflict was as much religious as it was political, economic, and military. Um, so the, the Fancher-Baker party was a group of Arkansas migrants headed to California. They were a rich, big wagon train. Hundreds of cattle, lots of horses. In fact, the stallion brought by Alexander Fancher was uh, alleged to be worth $2,857. I hate to think how much that wow. is now. That's an extremely valuable, beautiful horse. Um, uh, and and they had um, very rich trains um, and and very well organized. Uh, and Fancher had made the trip at least once before and maybe twice. He had a brother brother already settled in California. So this was a group um, uh, of of um, at least 150 people. I think yeah, at least. Um, and they um, they were headed to California, and they didn't like Mormons. They apparently were very derisory, at least. They were very upset when the saints refused to sell them grain, for example, as they were going through the territory. But Brigham Young, worried about the coming army, had ordered his people not to trade with any migrants. So there was conflict going through. The the, the saints um, uh, said that they'd been abused by the, the, the members of the train. The train said that they'd been abused by the Latter-day Saints and so on. So there was, there was bad feeling just between the people on the road, uh, but also there'd been anti-Mormon activity in Arkansas um, that involved at least one death um, and these people were um, uh, almost entirely Methodists. Um, and one of the things to think about Methodists and Mormons is that Mormons recruited very heavily from Methodists. They had a lot of converts, mm. <laughs> uh, people who thought that those who had stayed Methodists had no chance of going to heaven. And Methodists were really threatened by the Latter-day Saints and wanted nothing to do with them. So, so the, um, the, the religious conflict as well um, uh, it, it is really brewing there. And one of the things to note is that 
that the key leader, I've mentioned his name, John D. Lee of that militia in Southern Utah, and Alexander Fancher, the leader of the wagon train. They were both born in the same year, not very far apart. They both served in the same regiment in the Black Hawk War in 1832. Each had traveled in the other's territory. It is not clear whether they had met, but there's... uh, The army wasn't that big in 1832, so it it seems likely. And one of the family legends in the Fancher family is that Alexander Fancher, when he was approached because the Mormons were proposing a truce uh, toward the end of the siege of the wagon train, and we can get to that later, but Fancher said, whatever you do, do not trust John D. Lee. Don't do anything he says. That's a legend. We don't have a document confirming it, um, but that certainly is family lore. And I, I take that kind of thing pretty seriously. It's traveled well all this time. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the events that happened uh, or that at least began on September 6, 1857. Right. So, Over a period of um, almost a week, the wagon train, which had had been, had stopped in what were called mountain meadows, these beautiful high meadows, very lush with grass, uh, and the Fancher cattle and horses were busy eating all that grass, which didn't necessarily (laughs) please local Latter-day Saints. Um, they had been stopped there, sort of drinking the clear water, eating uh, uh, the, you know, feeding up their animals before making the trip across to California, which is very difficult and very, uh, very dry. And um, initially, uh, uh, in early September, um, as you say, on the 6th, um, there were a few. Um, uh, a couple of dozen people started firing on the wagon train, including saints and natives. Um, several were killed. Many were injured. The leaders of the train drew the wagons into a circle. And over the next several days, as their water and their food ran out, um, they became more and more desperate. Eventually, to make a lot a lot of things a little bit more simple, John D. Lee and a fellow Latter-day Saint carrying a white flag of truce approached the encircled wagons and said, if you leave all your possessions behind, don't take anything, leave the animals, leave the wagons, and walk out in two lines. Men in one line, totally unarmed, women and children in another line, we will guarantee your safety. There was back and forth and allegedly Fancher saying, don't do it. (laughs) The wounded Fancher, according to family legend, but the train agreed and the people walked out in two lines and 120 were killed that day. All the men, all the women, all but 17 of the children, all those under about age seven 
were killed. The 17 who survived were adopted, and you need to put scare quotes around adoption, um, into Mormon families. And within a couple of years, they had been recovered um, by a man who led an investigation and brought them back to Arkansas. Now, after the massacre, how did the militia leaders respond and i know that it was and and please correct me if i'm wrong um it was blamed heavily on the native american uh tribes that were uh supposedly involved can you talk to us a little bit more about that yes i can so in addition to to um being the leading settler of southern utah um, John D. Lee was also Indian agent, um, and he blamed the violence on what he called Captain Fancher exciting all the natives. And um, it, he really described the massacre as a, a, a savage attack by natives on the wagon train. And in fact, there had been some natives, but the leaders were all Latter-day Saints. <laughs> and um, and they, there were some terrible stories of, of um, people uh, walking along and shooting, um, uh, Latter-day Saints walking the fields and shooting people who were already wounded um, so that none would survive, saying, I do this for Jehovah, except their spirits, my God, that kind of thing. Um, and so there really was um, a concerted attempt to deny Latter-day Saint involvement, but suspicions really were roused relatively quickly, um, mm. especially in California when people began getting to California and telling the story. When, when federal investigators got there much later, there were still um, hair and bones unburied in the in the field um, in the meadow. Uh, so one of the things that happened was a very 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 long pattern of denial was mm -hmm. underway, and has been recently, I'd say, in the last twenty years, much more openly acknowledged by members of the church and and probably the premier study of the course of the massacre um, uh, was undertaken um, by three Latter-day Saints um, and published, I think it was 2007, Tragedy um, at Mountain Meadows. Uh, and it's a very fine work. What it doesn't do much of is situating the massacre in sort of a broader sense of American history, the levels of violence across the country, the kinds of conflicts between religious groups uh, that lead me to think, you know, if if the Methodists hadn't been the victims that day, maybe the Mormons would have been. I mean, they each of them were violent. Um, each of them believed that they had the keys to the kingdom of heaven and that only they did. And the other guy was always wrong. Um, so one of the things to think about is that this is not just a story of Latter-day Saints 
committing murder, planned murder. Um, but people who had been persecuted for a long time, who felt that they were deeply endangered and who distrusted uh, those who had come through their territory, uh, who were so obviously wealthy, who so obviously looked down their noses at them. Um, and, um, and they did a very, very thorough job of wiping the histories of these victims off the face of the earth. There are no, wow. no documents survived. None of it. It was a very well-organized train. Nothing. Wow. Yeah. So unfortunately, we are running out of time. <laughs> but I want to ask one question that we always like to ask our experts. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the Mountain Meadows Massacre, who or what would that be? That's a great, great question. A, a lot of people have blamed John D. Lee, and certainly he's blameworthy. Um, the first scholar who wrote about the massacre in 1950 said that Lee was a scapegoat, a, a, a literal biblical term for someone who is served up um, uh, as as a as a victim, um, and that's true as well. So I think I would say that the incredible violence of the creation of an American empire that traveled from sea to sea is essentially the cause here. What we have not paid enough attention to is how religion, how often religion played into conflict over that westward movement. Professor Gordon, thank you so much for speaking with us today and helping us understand uh, this part of our American history that might not be so well known. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, exactly what we needed great con <laughs> it I mean, was the, she was the moment <laughs> you know she she just put everything into context yeah. which is like you know what you wish with these um isolated uh tragedies when we speak about them you know again context is everything it's mm-hmm. not just an isolated incident it's like the the, the her um just explaining the violence that yeah. was part of life at that time mm-hmm. is somehow just unimaginable to us and we yeah. we have to keep right. reminding ourselves we touched on it briefly when we were talking about you know just like the prominence of religion during that time but i think it's a really important reminder for us in modern times to really try and envision ourselves in that environment in that world like what your daily interactions or influences were in a way that is completely different from the way that we live and, and exist now and how that totally. might affect these, you know, how you might perceive events like this happening around you. It's just a yeah. different world. A hundred percent. And not only the violence, but the politics of the time mm-hmm. and that being so centered on slavery and the question of slavery and should slavery be um, state's decision? Um, that yeah, whole thing she talked so about, popular the states sovereignty. States rights versus get federal rights. I love that when she was talking about popular right. sovereignty. Yes. I mean... Important to remember that these these questions keep coming up time and time again. I mean, we're mm-hmm. still debating those kinds of ideas, mm-hmm. right? Well, we're not debating slavery anymore, no, right? No, can no, please, no, that's not what I mean. Can I just we please mean, like, all the state agree on versus that? federal government? <laughs> yeah, like, state versus that's, federal. That debate yeah. wages on for sure. We're the United <laughs> States of America, but we're like the semi-United States. But it's oh. still states. They're still states. Right. Yes. What the heck's up with this country, man? <laughs> <laughs> this crunch is crazy. I don't know. I mean, we, we talked should... a lot about with Alex here on the regular episode about the size and mm-hmm. of America. Yeah. Big mm-hmm. America. Big we America. America right. was a big part of the episode. <laughs> just just too big. And it's yeah. just too big. You, you know, know, at a certain what, point, a house can be too big. Well, but when sorry, the, I cut you off, Chris. No, when Sally was talking about the session of uh, land, California, Utah, etc., uh, to America with the America-Mexico conflict, and basically... When they got Utah, this big sort of uninhabited space, nobody knows what to do with it. It just feels like a lot of the conflict arises because of this. (laughs) It's like, what do we do with this area? Who's in charge here? We suddenly like doubled in size, like it's a huge expansion of the country. And, And I think people were going 
to California. There are more people there. But this idea right. of like Utah being this kind of no man's land that is inhabited by this group of kind of like expelled crazy, mm -hmm. you know, Mormons that we don't like, and you have to like cross through their land and they won't sell, you know, like it's already hostile enough going through that terrain to think that you have to do that. And then the people who are already there, like we're not selling you our grain and you're like, well, whatever, you're a rogue religion. Like the tensions must have been so high. I know. So high. I know. I can't imagine. Um, it, so Professor Gordon, Sally, she, she, put it all on at the end of the day she thought it was just the violence of the of the time period well uh, she said specifically the violence of the creation of an american empire which i ooh. thought was really profound you know it really encapsulates like she america went further it's like got its growing pains mm -hmm. she said that travels from sea to sea, to sea i thought yeah. it was so poetic how I she know. put that and it's true the violence was pervasive it was ubiquitous it there was always violence there was violence um, and there was religion and the two were very much in yeah. bed together right. at this time it sounds like we are a country that of was for of violence mm -hmm. it was formed it through was, violence yeah well and i feel like the religion i think chris talked about this in, in our episode you know that the religion was like a kind of like a code of conduct, right? It was like trying to tell people like, this is how we should be better and how we mm -hmm. should behave as like members of the world. But right. it's just interesting that violence is, was also part of our culture. I mean, it still mm -hmm. is today, but it was really prominent back then. So it's hard for the two, it's hard for them to like kind of separate themselves. It seems yeah. like totally. there's a struggle of like, are we violent? Are we, are we children of God? Like, how do we right. <laughs> coexist with the violence? <laughs> what do we do? Right. Here? Defend um, ourselves, defend our rights. Uh, in in speaking with uh, Sally after uh, our interview, she um, mentioned another uh, that there was another massacre that happened uh, about eight ten years later in Circleville, Utah, which I want to um, put Explore. on our list. Sure. Yeah, because mm -hmm. we should look into that um, again. Another massacre um, where they told a group of people where, where they essentially lied to a group of people and um, then sent, a, a, you know, they later said they had sent for word from Brigham Young. And again, the later got back, the, the letter got back too late. Too late. So, which is like, okay. It's so like, okay, so this pattern. is a pattern. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's hard to know what his, invo how involved he was. Mm -hmm. um, so it's hard to pinpoint it, you know, directly back to him. We will but, definitely look into that. We'll put our best alarmist people on it. We're I getting mean, our prosecutors. Uh, they're they're going to get sent all these paper, all the paperwork and get yeah. all up to speed on that massacre clayton uh, tell us who and who did we end up sending to the alarmist jail so for this episode in the alarmist jail we threw religious radicalism okay and we slapped brigham young john d lee william dame isaac Haight, and the militia leaders R the militia leaders yes um so now again sally did also say that you know that horse that she talked about mm-hmm 
that, that was part of the Fancher that like wagon to yes. It was like two thousand dollars. John Dealey ended up with the horse. Ooh, and interesting. his wives apparently started wearing the the victim's jewelry. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's so funny how that ended up right in their hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, no one else is using it, I guess. So yeah, I mean, they're just gonna let it sit there. Gross. Does not make you look good in this story. No. So I, I I'm just saying that like I don't know. He's not innocent. He, well, you know, these people were not innocent. No. And they got, I, I think the religious radicalism, I guess. Well, do we I think that's what we decided on because we were back and forth. Yeah. And but, I feel like we were, were hovering around, I think, what um, Sally, Professor Gordon, was talking about. I don't know if we want to like maybe rephrase it. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. My thought about religious radicalism is that that's context like it, it depends on the context. And I think at this time, radicalism was sort of, I think their, our idea of what being a religious radical is, mm. is different than what it was at the time. For them, point. it was not radical to, like she said, there were militias kind of popping up everywhere. It wasn't just LDS. It was, there were just militias and there was a lot of, she used the word extra, extra illegal violence. Um, and so at this time, I feel like radicalism isn't quite, doesn't quite capture what was actually happening because right. it wasn't radical behavior. It was more common the norm behavior, or common. I guess. Yeah. It's almost. Yeah. So is it like, like religious, just like expansion? I like this idea of like the, the growing pains of like the expansion. Like, is it, cause it's expanding. I will say. But it's like religious. There's a lot of things happening in the, the expansion. The America, vi- mate, how about really this? Guys, how about this? Hang on, Rebecca. I, yes? I must say, just hat tip to Sally for right at the end of the episode, like we asked her the question and she nailed it in like this amazing poem of a sentence. <laughs> and why aren't we just using that? It exactly fell right that. on our laps. The yeah. violence of the creation of an American empire that travels from sea to sea. <laughs> I mean, it's very poetic. It's probably the most poetic thing we've ever sent to jail. And it's super specific. <laughs> you know, we're, send, we're sending a poem to jail. <laughs> well, it's just also super specific. You yeah, know? I think we should do it. I mean, it's just, it's so great. Okay. Um, okay, I'm going to call it. The violence of the creation of an American empire that travels from sea to sea. You're going to the alarmist jail. <laughs> Wow. Beautiful. God. Uh, that feels good. It does feel good. Because I, I, I was the way I was going to kind of encapsulate it was the violence of expansion. But I think that that is. Um, yeah, that's right in there. That would have gotten rolled right into it. Exactly. I mean, but it's specific to America, too, mm-hmm. because. It's very specific. We have to remind our ourselves. United that- States that are so that are of our big, big America, big land mass. And because of this. Pesky First Amendment, which allows people to uh, Mm -hmm. believe in freedom of religion and freedom of speech and all that stuff. The fact that we are uh, we are called where the United States is kind of like a a marketing uh, campaign. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, that's like been really trying to push us to come together since Mm -hmm. the. It's creation. We swear. It's a technical we're like, term. It's yeah, a technical yeah. We're like, term we're united, sure. right? Right? <laughs> right, guys. Guys, we're united. Oh, um, okay, so 
thank you so much to Professor Gordon, to Sally. Um, thank you, uh, of course, to Alex, Paul, our associate producer for this episode. Um, and uh, I just want to remind everyone before we go, because we haven't had any new reviews lately on <gasps> the podcast. And I think it's really important that if you haven't already rated reviewed subscribed and and you you like to listen to our show the best way you can support us is to give us a five-star review and leave a comment Mm -hmm. what is your favorite episode do you have any ideas uh for future episodes these are all the kinds of things that if you you have given us a review create a fake email and give us another review (laughs) no you don't have to do that but you know perhaps encourage the people around you to do that (laughs) no um but uh, seriously, it's it, it really it, it's what's going to help us continue to make these episodes and uh, continue to have them for free for all of you to uh, enjoy. Uh, Clayton, can you hit us with uh, uh, a recent review, um, something real short and sure. uh, catchy? Clayton's face when you said, well, can you hit us? Like, his eyes. <laughs> short, catchy, I mean, short, rhyming, catchy if one. possible. <laughs> um, here's, this is the first thing that comes up from oh, KT922011. I can't remember how, sorry, I can't remember how I came across this podcast. It was probably a suggestion from Spotify. In any case, I am so glad I found this. It's comedy. It's educational. It's using critical thinking skills. It's everything. Oh, it's everything. Well, thank you. Uh, And uh, we appreciate everyone out there who's left us reviews and uh, rated and subscribed. Now, stay tuned because next week we are going to be discussing Great Gardens. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.